from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Welcome to the Friday edition of Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships here at Family Research Council. Back with you today and filling in for our President Tony Perkins. Good Friday afternoon and Happy New Year, friends. Yesterday, the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives delivered a sharp rebuke to President Trump over his use of U.S. military power in the Middle East, approving a measure to restrict his authority to strike Iran without congressional approval. In just a minute, I'll talk with Republican Congressman Chip Roy of Texas about why he thinks the vote was a waste of time. In my second segment, a Virginia bill would allow birth control for kids without parental consent. Kathy Roos, FRC's Senior Fellow for Legal Studies, will join me. At the bottom of the hour, record-breaking high temperatures, strong winds, and years of drought have wreaked havoc in Australia, killing at least 25 and scorching 15 million acres of land. I'll talk with Ed Graham, assistant to the vice president of Samaritan's Purse and Franklin Graham's youngest son, about their important work helping Australians in the midst of this crisis. And at 42 past the hour, Michael Knowles, host of the Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire, explained why the queen of sin, pride, has become a virtue in our culture and why that's a bad thing. He will join me for a fascinating conversation. As a reminder, visit our website, TonyPerkins.com, and follow Tony on Twitter, at T. Perkins, or me, at Sarah P. Perry. Well, yesterday, the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives delivered a rebuke to President Trump over his use of U.S. military power in the Middle East, approving a measure to restrict his authority to strike Iran without congressional consent. Now, the resolution passed by a vote of 224 to 194 and now goes to the Senate. Eight Democrats have joined Republicans in opposing the resolution, while three Republicans voted in favor. Joining me now with his analysis is Republican Congressman Chip Roy of the 21st District of Texas. He serves on the Budget Committee, the Oversight and Reform Committee, and the Veterans Affairs Committee. Congressman Roy, welcome back to Washington Watch. Jared, thanks for having me on. Thanks for what you guys do. Appreciate uh, being uh, uh, joining you. Well, we're excited about the work that you're doing to speak sense into what seems like a bunch of nonsense about this resolution in the House. It seems a little bit symbolic based on how Nancy Pelosi has structured this resolution. It is, and I'm explaining to the listeners here, what's known as a concurrent resolution, meaning it requires only the approval of both chambers, but not the signature of the president. So the bill is non-binding. Is it fair to say that this is largely a PR stunt? Well, I'm glad you're asking this because this is actually one of my fundamental problems with it. Um, what we see is we see a president who is responding and taking out Soleimani to someone who was clearly engaged in activities harming our men and women's uniform. We saw a dead contractor. We saw four wounded uh, soldiers who were based in Iraq. We know they've had other uh, recent engagements, and we had serious plans that uh, are leadership in both intelligence and state and defense and each of those entities uh, were acknowledging and explaining to us the uh, potential imminent attacks. 
uh, in response, Democrats do what? They put forward a messaging resolution uh, that has no teeth. It wouldn't actually do anything. Rather than doing what a number of us would like to do on both sides of the aisle, which is have a robust debate uh, about our authorization to force, about what our footprint should be in Iraq and Afghanistan, making sure our men and women in uniform have a clear mission. And that we can then work with the president about what that looks like, right, when we're talking about dealing with terrorist organizations in the year 2020. Congress retains the right to declare war, but the president has to be the commander-in-chief to execute. And instead of having a sober adult debate on the floor of the House, as we should, and discuss these important war power considerations, instead we had a messaging resolution, which – uh, really amounted to a slap at what the president had done when we ought to stand united in taking down Soleimani, but have a robust debate about but how long are we going to be there? Why are we there? Why do we have X thousand troops in Iraq, X thousand troops in Afghanistan? That's what I've referred to do. That's what I'm working with some of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle soon to be able to put something forward where we can actually have that discussion. Now, the Democrats have put forth varying rationale over why something like this is necessary. And not surprisingly, the repetitive talking point seems to be that Trump is acting without his authority. He is exacting monarchical power, that he is making decisions without consulting anyone, that he is rogue. Pick your adjective at this point. And in particular, Democratic Congressman James Raskin of Maryland spoke up for the War Powers Resolution, talking about the framers' desire to act essentially in curbing the power of one individual as they were writing against a background of kings and princes, and that the awesome power of one individual ought not to determine whether we go to war or we do not. I feel as though this is something we can address here because your contention and that of the House Freedom Caucus is this is really not a declaration of war. The attack on General Somani falls a bit outside that purview in your contention, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and look, I, I know Congressman Raskin. In fact, we are uh, he's the chairman and I'm the ranking member of the uh, subcommittee on civil rights and civil liberties on the oversight committee. Well, I work with him regularly. He has a deep appreciation for the Constitution. I can attest to that. We just disagree fundamentally on a lot of our views and, and, and the way we approach it. What I would say to my friend from Maryland is uh, I actually agree with that quote. Right. And and, and I suspect many of your listeners agree. We do not want to empower the executive branch, uh, regardless of which party the the president happens to be from, whether it's President Trump or President Obama. Congress has the full authority to declare war. Now, you're rightfully raising that question. Does this is this amount uh, to declaration of war? I do not believe so. I've looked at the intelligence. Most of my colleagues uh, that have come to the same conclusion, uh, we sat there and we listened to the briefing. We reached that conclusion. This was very close to party lines. Obviously, more Democrats broke our direction than Republicans the other. But let me say, a couple of my good friends, Matt Gates, Tom Massey, they voted the other way because they, like I and other Republican members, believe very strongly that we should make sure that we reclaim Article One powers and clarify what we're doing with respect to the authorization of force. This is a prospective point. They believe, Matt and Thomas, that we want to make sure that the president can't go on offense with respect to Iran without coming to Congress. 
the reason I disagreed with them, I think they had meritorious arguments. I disagreed because I think that's already what we see in the Constitution, what we already see in the War Powers Act that's current law. The president has the ability to defend us. The president has the ability to act to stop imminent harm. If the president wants to go into Iran for anything offensive today, he needs to come. He needs to come talk to us. Um, If he's going to take action, he'll have to come to Congress. So I think that this is an unnecessary messaging vehicle. We ought to have a a robust adult debate about um, our footprint in the Middle East generally. Well, let's talk a little bit about Democratic rhetoric and what we're seeing coming out of the media. We understand that that Speaker Pelosi refuses to refer to Soleimani as anything other than a military general. And we understand, obviously, being responsible for the death of 608 Americans, that he is anything but 17 percent of all U.S. casualties in Iraq from 2004 to 2011 fall under his responsibility. But Chris Matthews on MSNBC has the audacity to compare Soleimani with Princess Diana and Elvis, elevating him to a level of celebrity. What is with the refusal to identify Soleimani as the terrorist that he is? I think this is where we're falling into the trap of politics over policy and over substance, right? This is just more of the, well, you know, President Trump is is all things evil. Therefore, uh, whatever he did, we're going to be against. And instead of having a rational recognition, look, many of my Democratic colleagues have been making very rational points about how bad Soleimani was, how bad he was immediate in, in just the immediate days preceding his demise. Um, but there are some who are ratcheting up the rhetoric uh, and aren't acknowledging that he was, in fact, a, a terrorist. And, in fact, remember, President Obama, uh, in his administration, they designated the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran um, as a terrorist entity. I think mm-hmm. it was in 2011. And so this is nothing uh, earth-shattering. We all know what's going on here. We know how bad Suleimani was. We know what Suleimani was engaged in. Uh, and the Monday morning quarterbacking I would love to see what that Monday morning quarterbacking would have looked like had, like the, say, Beirut situation or situations where we've had tragedies befall our men and women in uniform in significant numbers. What would they have been saying about the incompetence, quote unquote, of President Trump if he had not acted uh, to take out Soleimani and Soleimani mm-hmm. had struck and killed dozens or hundreds of our men and women in uniform in Iraq or in Afghanistan or in uh, Syria or any other place where we've got our footprint? That it's absurd that we're having this debate. Uh, I've written a piece that hopefully will appear in the next couple of days in an online publication making this point. It's a missed opportunity. If we had the true leadership that we ought to have in the Congress, we wouldn't have been sparring in this political setting. We would have been united in saying the president was right to take out Soleimani. We would have said that Iran is evil. They should be in notice that the American people are united against their evil. And then we should have had a debate. It should be ongoing. It should be weeks on end, not not just a day. We should have a robust debate about the war powers, about what declaring war looks like in a world where we have weird networks scattered around the world of amorphous entities that want to terrorize us, right. as opposed to the nation-state war that our, that our forefathers knew. We're not lining up on the battlefield with blue coats and red coats. This is a new age, a new era. We ought to recognize that. Democrats and Republicans coming together – to do that, 
that's what we should do with proper leadership. Unfortunately, that is not what uh, Speaker Pelosi chose to do. Well, we're dealing, like you said, with sort of irregular warfare. This is a landscape that is constantly evolving, and the nature of conflict looks nothing like it did even 30 or 40 years ago. And again, Obama taking out Osama bin Laden, we understood to be a necessary step. So this feels a little bit like a double standard. Well, I I, I tend to agree with that. Um, I, I think... That's what we're seeing oftentimes right now with our uh, the Democratic leadership in the House. But, you know, let's be fair. Uh, we see a lot of that uh, in both sides. Unfortunately, too often we see the shirts and skins mentality. Now, I'm mm-hmm. a proud Republican. I think the Republicans ought to be in the majority uh, after next November. Uh, I think hopefully we'll have a strong majority so we can get busy doing what the American people actually want, secure the board of the United States, and get health care freedom back so you can afford your health care. Make sure men and women have a clear mission. Um, make sure that we've got a balanced budget. We need to take action, and uh, I think it takes putting aside politics to do that. Congressman Chip Roy of the Texas 21st Congressional District, thanks for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us today. We appreciate all you do. You are listening to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships, sitting in on this Friday afternoon for Tony Perkins. Coming up next, a problematic Virginia bill is currently being considered, allowing birth control for kids without parental consent. Kathy Roos, FRC's Senior Fellow for Legal Studies, will join me next on Washington Watch. Join FRC Live via webcast for the 15th annual Pro-LifeCon Digital Action Summit. On January 24th from FRC's headquarters in Washington, you'll hear from political leaders, bloggers, journalists, and activists who will share how they view social media and other digital tools to further the pro-life message. You'll be empowered to better reach your own communities by learning best practices from those who are at the cutting edge of the digital pro-life movement. Tune in Friday, January 24th at 8 a.m. at ProLifeCon.com. We all need to be lectured sometimes. Family Research Council's new podcast features selected talks by top thinkers from the archives of the FRC Speaker Series. Our podcast podium takes on tough issues like religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture, all from a biblical worldview. Listen with us to the lecture, then stick around afterward as we break down the content. The Lecture Me podcast is available wherever podcasts are found or visit frc.org slash podcasts. Ever hear the term toxic masculinity? Hello, this is Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council. Masculinity is under attack in our culture. The American Psychological Association released guidelines declaring traditional masculinity ideology as harmful. Brown University and Ivy League School offered a course, Unlearning Toxic Masculinity, explaining that rigid definitions of masculinity are toxic to men's health. In a University of Texas class, Masculine UT treated masculinity as if it were a mental health crisis. Thankfully, the culture does not have the last word on true masculinity. God does. Our Stand Courageous Men's Conferences offer biblical solutions to the crisis of manhood. We seek to help men develop character, cultivate habits, build relationships, and make commitments that will move them closer 
to God's design. Check out StandCourageous.com for an event in your area. That's StandCourageous.com. What other trip to... Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins. TonyPerkins.com is the podcast website. We are also on SoundCloud and wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Tony on Twitter at T. Perkins or me at Sarah P. Perry. Well, Virginia is no longer considered a red state. By most estimations, it's purple trending toward blue. And a Democrat-sponsored bill in Virginia would treat minors as adults for the purpose of consenting to birth control, vaccines, and medical or health services required in, quote, pregnancy or family planning, except for the purposes of sexual sterilization. So that's generous. The bill, Senate Bill 104, includes the stipulation that the Commonwealth's law require parental consent for abortion would remain in fact, in effect. So now what we're dealing with is allowing minors to receive medical or health services needed to determine the presence of or treat venereal diseases, infectious diseases, pregnancy and family planning. So, ironically enough, in Virginia, minors need parental permission to be given Advil in schools or have their ear pierced. I know this full well, as does my next guest, Kathy Roos, FRC's Senior Fellow for Legal Studies. Kathy, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's great to be on. So I'm guessing that we shouldn't be surprised to discover the bill, which undermines parental rights, is sponsored by Democratic State Senator Barbara Favola, who's a Planned Parenthood-endorsed leftist. And her website touts her work as a, quote, lifelong pro-choice advocate and her LGBTQ rights activism, end quote. Does this surprise you in the least, considering where your home state is trending? Well, it doesn't. You know, it's shocking, but not surprising. Um, we are now going to see all the masks being torn off of these public officials who have in the past in Virginia um, sometimes tried to, see, uh, tried to sound reasonable and like they're operating um, with common sense. But now that they have complete control of the power levers in Virginia, they're, they're using them with, with impunity. Um, and so here, you know, here we are with one of the very first bills dropped, um, trying to basically get the government in between parents and their children. That's what so much mm. of this is about. So much of this sex education um, deterioration in our country and so much of the efforts on Planned Parenthood and other groups is to get the parents out of the way. And right. so here is a bill that, that does just that, get the parents out of the way, give us direct access to the children. We've seen this in the gender identity context as well through educational avenues where there are cross-sex hormones that are delivered or puberty blockers. So the removal of parental consent, information, knowledge, this seems to be an ongoing theme. And now, for the first time in 26 years, you've got both houses blue in the Virginia legislature. So the efforts here 
to give minors birth control the HPV shot, and that's the human papilloma virus. That's a sexually transmitted disease. And the PREP sex drug without parental involvement are kind of just par for the course, aren't they? Well, in the area of abortion and birth control, um, sadly, um, that has already, uh, um, in those areas, um, underage children um, can have access to those, um, to those um, things without parents' um, knowledge or consent. Um, and I do know this bill does say that it will follow whatever the rules are for abortion uh, reporting to parents. Um, uh, girls can go through and get a, uh, theoretically get a judicial bypass, um, which is a judge saying you don't have to, that, that the abortion clinic doesn't have to notify this child's parents. It's in her best interest to have a secret abortion. This is all really in the weeds, but the point is that abortion is kind of a separate issue. Birth control is, is right along there with them, but what we see now are broadening it to vaccines, um, like, as you, as you mentioned, HPV and PrEP. HPV, human papilloma virus, um, carries a risk, and one of the risks is premature menopause. In other words, sterility. Mm. Now, a child does a child have the capacity to consent to that sort of risk in uh, going directly to a healthcare person and and getting the virus or getting getting this vaccination without a parent's intervention? You know, I'm a lawyer. I remember learning uh, that. You know, children cannot sign contracts. Why can't right. children sign contracts? Right. Because they don't have the capacity to consent to be legally bound by a contract. And if a child signs a contract, that's not legally enforceable in court, right? Uh, but, and that's because they're not, they're not, their maturity level is not sufficient to, to bind themselves to something like that. Well, the maturity level is not sufficient to, uh, consent to taking things that, ca- that, that carry such risks. Um, but, the point is that they don't care about the they don't care about the children really. Um, they don't care about parents' rights, but it's really about the harms to children. Only parents, it's the parents who know and love their children the most, who have their medical histories, um, who can keep a track of their medic, medical interventions in case down the road um, they need to be uh, reviewed. Doing this all secretly. Secretly, really. This is secret vaccinations. It should be right. called the secret vaccination bill, right? Right. Well, in any other context, we have to know if our child so much as goes for an ear piercing or accesses Advil at the school. So this is, again, sort of the subliminal silencing of parents and the insidious creep of telling parents that they are not, in fact, in the best position to know what is best for their children. School administrators, doctors, healthcare professionals, judges, they're the best people, aren't they? But you and I know that's not the case. Kathy Roos has been my guest today on Washington Watch. Sarah Perry here sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday afternoon. Well, we've been following the stories in the news. Australia is burning. Record-breaking temperatures, winds, and drought have stirred intense wildfires, wreaking incredible damage. I'll have the pleasure of talking with Edward Graham of Samaritan's Purse coming up next on Washington Watch.
Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships. Well, we've all seen them on the news, and now we know that 25 people across the country of Australia have lost their lives to the devastating wildfires. 1,500 homes have been destroyed, and 15 million acres of land have been burned. New South Wales and Victoria have both declared states of emergency, but within a week of the initial outburst of the first fire, Samaritan's Purse Australia Disaster Relief Team was offering help and support to the communities of Stanthorpe and Bow Desert, Queensland. Their work continues, and you can make a donation right now at SamaritansPurse.org or call one 800 528 1980. Joining me now to talk about the devastation and how Samaritan's Purse is helping is Edward Graham, assistant to the vice president and Franklin Graham's youngest son. Edward, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you all having me on tonight. Well, I want to ask you a question in light of what we've seen happen so often and even recently in California. How do you compare the devastation here in Australia? Well, I you know, I didn't live the fires in California, nor am I living the fires right now in Australia. So for those victims there, it'd be hard to compare. But just imagine what we saw in Paradise, California, in the aftermath and complete destruction of entire communities and forever changing way of life. That's much what we're hearing from reports in Australia of just these massive fires that are coming in and destroying entire communities. Um, but just the challenge that Australia has where it was confined in certain areas and valleys within California, and this is happening all throughout Australia. Mm-hmm. And what most people don't realize is, you know, most of the cities in Australia around the coast, everything in the interior is just that interior. It's hard to transport uh, supplies and materials across the vastness of that country. Right. They just don't have the infrastructure that connects it. So a lot of it's air and, uh, and trucking, and it just takes time to respond. So it's just a massive undertaking Australia is dealing with right now. How many volunteers with Samaritan's Purse Australia and New Zealand do you have on the ground, and what are they doing at this point? Well, it changes kind of daily. We, we've been doing this for three months with our initial responses. So the DR program, the disaster response program that we have in Australia, is not quite as big as we have here in the U.S. So Samaritan's Purse is a global operation. We have offices throughout the world, but we have actually disaster response in Canada, here, and in uh, Australia with uh, tractor-trailer teams that go out. And so we've had uh, you know hundreds of volunteers go out already with Samaritan's Purse in Australia. And these are local volunteers that we partner with with the local churches. They're just like we do mm-hmm. here in the U.S. and in Canada. We actually have members of uh, the Canadian office and team that are en route, some already there, um, that are working on the ground. We've sent materials even today here from the U.S. We're not sending U.S. personnel there, but um, most of our staff is either Australian and coming from Canada, and then all of, all of our volunteers are from local churches there in Australia. I'm glad you mentioned the Canadian team that you're sending there. These are highly trained individuals, but to people who don't understand what disaster relief looks like practically, what is a highly trained individual? How are they prepped to deal with things like this? Yeah, so this team specifically dealt with some massive forest fires they had there uh, just a few years ago in Canada, and they dealt with uh, the loss of entire communities coming through. 
Um, and so a lot of the challenges that Australia is dealing with were kind of are probably very similar to what Canada recently dealt with. So this team has been trained on uh, just everything from chainsaw uh, equipment um, to, to dig out to um, sifting. So a lot of these, once a home is completely destroyed, the homeowner is just sitting there grieving. But these volunteers have been mm-hmm. trained to be able to go in there and actually recover. You'd be surprised what a, a lost uh, wedding band or a diamond engagement ring or your grandmother's earrings or pendant that was left behind. Mm-hmm. When that's all that is found out of everything destroyed or the one picture frame with a photo still in it that right. you found through sifting, it's a huge uh emotional opportunity to be to care and love on that individual and then that provides an opportunity for the billy graham association which is also there and their rapid response chaplains go in there and minister and love onto them during these opportunities if things were particularly bad in malakuta which is a coastal town in the state of victoria how bad did it get at one point there yeah it, um again i'm just getting reports i haven't had the chance to to get down there yet but the uh you know there, there's conversations of panic and obviously and, 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 and fear that comes in with these and mm-hmm. uh, just, just the um, I think the the feeling of hopelessness for these homeowners and especially once they've lost everything but when they see the fire and the smoke coming in and engulfing in can you imagine if you're a young child and you're seeing these flames uh, just come storming in and oh, the fear that you live with with that one you know we're getting stories right now our DR units right there on uh, Vic, in, uh, in Victoria and this is in a community where you saw the uh, Australian Navy responding, evacuating people off the beaches in order to get them away from the fire and the smoke. The smoke's the big, you know, one of the big killers there as well. And but that's where our DR team is there right now, working and uh, partnering with local churches in order to respond. We have reports of individuals who have fled to the beach for safety from military evacuees who've had to leave insurance claims in the millions. And Samaritan's Purse is there. Edward Graham, associated with Samaritan's Purse and the Graham family, has been my guest today. Go to SamaritansPurse.org right now for more information on what they're doing to help those who are in need in Australia. You're listening to Washington Watch. Coming up next, Michael Knowles, host of the Michael Knowles Show at the Daily Wire, explained why pride, what he calls the queen of sin, has suddenly become a virtue in our culture. We'll be right back on Washington Watch. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. A strong case can now be made that China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith, especially Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong. The Chinese Communist Party's movement against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. 
the Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these human rights and religious freedom violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. That's frc.org slash China. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemicalabortion. Last year, my brother Josh, a 37... We're back, and I have to tell you, sometimes this is my favorite segment of the show. It's what I like to call the big idea segment. And I get a chance to talk to one of my favorite big idea generators. Michael Knowles is host of the Michael Knowles Show at the Daily Wire. And he wrote a piece recently, a couple of months ago, about why what he calls the queen of sin, pride, has become a virtue in our culture and why that's a bad thing. Michael, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be here. So I have to tell our listeners, um, you are kind of a brainiac, but you're precisely the cool kind that people would want to go out and have dinner with and really pick your brains on issues. With honors from Yale University, you are a regular news, TV, radio, podcast commentator. You lecture at research institutes. And on and on. But I'm excited to have you because you wrote a piece that particularly resonated with me as a mother. And I'll tell you why. The concept of self as king really embodies not only what I would consider to be the hubris of the American progressive left, but also something that I have taught my kids to keep underwhelmingly small in their Personhood, And you talk about the fact that humility has actually become a vice because we promote the notion of pride. So you talked a little bit about, for example, bigger agendas than just sexual tolerance and talked a little bit about Pride Month, not just being about tolerating anymore. It's about affirming and driving home and acquiescing. So talk a little bit about the notion of Pride Month, and that was sort of a microcosm for the beginning of this discussion. Well, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Yes, it would seem to be a very bad PR move for the American left to exalt the deadliest of the seven deadly sins as their greatest virtue now, and that is pride. And by the way, Pride Month no longer even just refers to homosexuality or sexual acceptance. They've actually relegated that to a different month. The LGBTQ month is now October, and Pride Month refers to pride itself, fat pride, skinny pride, racial pride, all those sorts of 
pride. And of course, pride is is the worst of the vices. You know, you can meet somebody who's not very educated, not very intelligent even, but if they're humble, they will very often appear wise. You can mm-hmm. meet the most educated, credentialed person in the world, and if they're prideful, if they're arrogant, they will come off as total idiots. Pride is is the excessive love of your own self. I mean, we just saw this last Sunday at the Golden Globes. Yes, I'm yeah, glad you said you this, because this, this was something I wanted to talk to you about. Tell me. It, this is an amazing acceptance speech that she gave. She got up there and she said, thank you so much, all of you Hollywood millionaires, for giving me this gold statue. I wouldn't have this statue without abortion. If I had not killed my own child, I right. would not be as famous or as wealthy as I am right now. Thank you very much. And that is not exactly a new idea. We see that in the Bible. We've known that for all time. It is certainly the case that if you commit great immoralities, you can receive some reward in this life. I mean, it's probably not going to serve you very well in the next life. And the premise of right. all of this is that it is so important for the world to celebrate Michelle Williams. It's so important for the world that she should get to pursue every desire that she has, that she is literally willing and, and eager and encouraging of, of killing children in order to do that. That's the kind of craziness that pride leads you to. And a prideful society is going to encourage that selfishness. And that, that's ugly, both on an individual level and on a social level. Whereas if you have a society that takes a step back, looks with a little bit of humility, says, hey, before we redefine marriage, before we redefine gender and sex itself, these bedrock institutions, maybe let's take a look around and have a little respect for the wisdom of the ages. That society is going to be much more selfless and it's going to be much more sane. Well, and now, speaking of the Golden Globes, we see what a monumental and earth-shattering monologue Ricky Gervais was when he said, and I quote, (laughs) shut up, you cannot be in a position to comment about anything, which I thought was ironically prescient because, again, Michelle Williams gets up and then tells everyone, well, I am here because of abortion, and in fact, he has begun the show by saying, you're so out of touch with reality. What makes you think you can comment on any of this? But again, this is sort of the microcosm of the rest of the world, right? And you are a studier of the big thinkers, so we know religion is downstream from the culture, so we see this in the culture. So you talked a little bit about having passed the D-Day invasion, 75th anniversary, It's discouraging for me as someone who is a little older, a little further along in years, who has teenagers and will have college students soon enough to realize that what I'm seeing coming out of today's youth is not necessarily of the same caliber, the same character, the same gravitas of the individuals, young men who would go and sacrifice their lives for the greater good of freedom. That's a bit unimaginable today, isn't it? I have a big confession to make. I'm actually a millennial. Oh, I know you are. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it's not the the best-looking generation around. It certainly doesn't compare to the greatest generation you guys have scored. And I think the the lie that we've been told is that by pursuing our own self-interest and ignoring everybody else and refusing to sacrifice, we are going to make ourselves much happier. And of course, that's a lie. If you look at data from the past 50 years, people have become terribly unhappy. Rates of anxiety, depression, suicidality are going through the roof. That is 
truer nowhere more so than among young Americans. The, the rates are much higher among millennials and Gen Z. Teen suicide is up 70 percent in just the past few years. And it's because a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small package indeed. We are told constantly by this culture, you're perfect. You're wonderful just the way you are. Don't change a thing. If you've got a problem, it's society's fault. It's not your fault. And we, we force ourselves to believe that, but we just know it's not true. We all know deep, deep down that we are flawed people. We sense those flaws. And denying it isn't going to make it any better. It's going to make despair and depression go through the roof. Ironically, perhaps unexpectedly, the way that we're going to get out of that and have a better view of ourselves and a better society is when we acknowledge our own flaws, our own brokenness. We acknowledge an objective moral standard, and we try to approach it. We try to make ourselves better. Yes, absolutely. And, in fact, you talked about wisdom being a function of the fear of the Lord, right? Humility coming from that position. I'm reminded of the verse in Romans 12 that says, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. For those of us who ascribe to a Christian worldview, it is very interesting to me to see even within the body of the church universal, there are those who struggle, and I think platforms have a tendency to do this. After a while, we have probably the inclination to begin believing our own press. It really does benefit us, particularly me as someone from an older generation, to look at my children and say, it is okay that you are not the best at XYZ. It is okay that you, you are not perfect at XYZ. And in fact, we have celebrated weaknesses because weakness is an opportunity for God's strength really to be manifest in us, as it says in Second Corinthians. So, As someone of an older generation speaking to a millennial, you give me hope that maybe all is not lost after all. But I want to I want to pivot a little bit to a book of yours that is now number one on Amazon. So here I'm giving you a little press. It is a comprehensive guide. Reasons to vote. For Democrats, and it's approximately 260-odd pages. Now, let me tell our listeners, without spoiling it, you will get through the book very quickly. But the footnotes, the endnotes, my friend, the bibliography, will take you a little bit of time. So tell me, what was the initiation for a book like this? Well, I had been researching the topic all of my life, you know, full 27, 28 years researching it, but I wrote it in about 15 seconds. You know, if you want to talk about humility and brevity, this is certainly a brief book. And what's so funny about it is I published this completely blank book. I just put it online. I self-published it. It cost me no money, and I took very little time to do it other than the extensive bibliography. And it very quickly, within just a few days, jumped and became the number one best-selling book in the world. And, you know, it's an old joke. There are plenty of blank books out there. There's everything men know about women. There are all all (laughs) sorts of uh, joke books in history. And this one jumped up now because I think people are looking around and they're seeing that the left told us if Trump were elected, the sky would fall, everything would collapse, it would be a calamity. And guess what happened? Everything's been just fine. In fact, it's been getting better. And I've noticed that the sales have increased since the first Democratic 2020 debates. I think that's pretty clear why they're explaining my thesis. Warren and Buttigieg and Sanders. I think I'm going to have to give them a cut of the royalties before this thing is all said and done. (laughs) Well, it's our hope that this book continues to skyrocket. You have quite a number of 
very notable endorsements of this book. But I want to ask you a question about your history, because as many educated people are, I believe that you are an individual who thinks deeply about big questions. And you actually reference that in your Daily Wire piece about there is a connection between humility and the unknowingness of all things, right? This is one of the things that separates us from God. So you went through a period that you are a self-described atheist, according to what I've read from 13 to about 23. And yet in college, when most individuals decide they will walk away from God in favor of science and what they perceive to be more luminary thinkers, you actually came back to God. Tell me about that. I did. I mean, I went to one of the most secular atheistic colleges in the country, uh, which is Yale. Bill Buckley wrote his first book, God and Man at Yale, about that very fact. And I got right. there, and I noticed that, that my classmates, most of them were atheists, were very intelligent, some of them much more intelligent than me. But then I noticed that the very smartest people actually were religious. They were Christian. They tended toward uh, orthodox and liturgical Christian traditions, the most mm-hmm. mystical, the most smells and bells of all of them. I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> smells and, and bells, I, I, we'll I, have to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I noticed, you know, I noticed the ontological argument for God and so many of the other arguments, there are probably a dozen good ones, were much better than any of the arguments against God. And that weakened some of my hubris. You know, I, I fell into mm-hmm. atheism because I felt that the church was not doing a very good job of catechizing, of, of bringing people in. But really, it was my own fault. It was my own arrogance. It was my own pride as a precocious 13-year-old, especially at that moment when Chris Hitchens and um, Samuel Harris and Daniel Dennett were all the new atheists. So I think those new atheists are really good writers for 13-year-olds. They're not very good for people who've actually thought about the question. And, and that's it. Just as you say, you know, a little bit of humility goes a long way, and pride goes before uh, destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I mean, the, the big lie that I think has been exposed recently is that the left wants to tell us that we're all playing on neutral ground when we accept atheism, when we accept mm. the culture of pride. That is not neutral ground. Uh, That is a very specific agenda. And, you know, just as the Christians have a liturgical calendar, you know, the Catholics in June celebrate the month dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, so the left celebrates a month dedicated toward pride. Those things cannot coexist. You've got to pick a side, and I would humbly suggest you choose the side of humility and fear of the Lord, which is truly the beginning of wisdom. I've heard you speak in other contexts, and we have just a couple minutes here, about the left's manipulation of language to win at political warfare. What do you mean by that? Well, that's what political correctness is. Political correctness is using soft euphemisms to not only distort, but actually totally invert reality, and they use it constantly. They tell us now that a a man who puts on a dress is actually a woman, and they say that if you don't refer to that person as a woman, you could lose your job, you could be accused of some offense. And what the left believes fundamentally when they endorse this kind of language is that objective reality doesn't matter, that they can create a whole new utopia just by using language. You know, you see it summed up in Alice in Wonderland. Humpty Dumpty says, "In, in my language, words mean whatever I say they mean. Alice asks... 
Is that really possible for words to mean all those things? And Humpty Dumpty says, that's not the question. The question is, which is to be master? The left would master our mm. culture by totally perverting language. And the way that we on the right will, will take back the culture is by using clear language and referring to objective reality. Because in the end, ultimately in the long run, reality will win. Yes, it will. And in fact, you have written about this. You've talked about this. There is no more evident aspect of such a struggle with language than there is in the gender identity, the transgender battlefield. And for women like myself who have 13-year-old daughters, the concept of thinking that a biological man might share a private space with her incenses me. But we put Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of ESPN magazine magazine because she, air quotes, is such a hero, but we know that he is a man. We also know men don't have uteruses, men cannot get abortions, and there are other facts that are realistically based that we have to be consistent with. So it sounds like if you had an admonition, perhaps it's just to keep saying the true thing. Which can be a dangerous activity these days, but we're living through 1984, perhaps, and yet that's what we must do, because speaking of the virtues, courage is the prerequisite of all the virtues, and I think we, we all ought to encourage one another and speak the truth without fear. Michael Knowles, host of the Michael Knows Knowles Show on The Daily Wire, has been my fabulous guest. What a great conversation. To listen in again or share today's podcast, go to TonyPerkins.com for more information there. We will see you next time on Washington Watch. I've been Sarah Perry, sitting in for Tony Perkins. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 